Today in the Journey with Steve DeWitt, a message from John 13. Notice that Peter is appalled at the thought that Jesus would ever wash his feet and says to Jesus, there's no way you're going to do that. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And what it means here is that Jesus is parabolizing his own salvation and redemption. In Jesus' day, washing feet was a humble duty typically assigned to servants. But Jesus' act of kindness went beyond washing feet. It was a profound symbol of spiritual cleansing. Today on The Journey, Pastor Steve DeWitt teaches a crucial lesson about the necessity of spiritual purification for a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the start of a brand new series on The Upper Room. And remember, you can always listen online at thejourney.fm. Now here's Pastor Steve DeWitt with a message titled, Washing Disciples' Hearts. You know, we don't start a a big new series that often because the big new series end up being big series. And so it's always special to kick off a new series, which we are doing today. Uh, And we are going to be spending maybe a year or so in the upper room, the upper room, the famous upper room, Arguably, the most important room in all of human history is the upper room. Now, I say that, we don't know exactly where it was at. If you go to Israel, they'll say, well, maybe it was here, but we don't know for sure where it was at. But among the significant events that happened in this room, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He identified Judas as his betrayer. He taught incredibly wonderful and key truths. He prayed his high priestly prayer. After his crucifixion, the disciples go and they basically hide out in this same upper room. Jesus appears to them in his resurrected body. Uh, Many days later, they will be back in this same upper room when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, beginning the age of the church. So I would ask you, can you think of any other room in human history with a better pedigree than the famous upper room? And I personally like that the room is an upper room instead of a basement. And the reason I say that is that when you think about the things that were taught there, what happened there, and who was there, indeed, this is an upper room with elevated truths and inspiring realities the upper room. John 13 through John 17. These five chapters are long. If they were by themselves, they would be by themselves the 11th longest book in the New Testament. So that's why we're gonna be in this. I actually don't know how long we'll be in it. We'll see. I would say a year at least. And uh, we think about this upper room to realize that within 12 hours of being in this upper room, Jesus would be hanging by nails on a cross Within 18 hours, he's dead. A very significant place. If you knew that you were going to die within 18 hours, where would you go, what would you do, and who would you hang out with? And here we have who, where, and what the Son of God chose to do and to be with in the last hours of his life. And I think this just adds significance to these five 
chapters. They are known by some as the upper room discourse. Others call it the farewell discourse. But what I am doing is inviting you for the next year or so to walk up the steps, walk up the famous steps, and to take a seat at the table with 12 disciples and with Jesus. And let's see what that room does here for the next year. As we often do when we get into a new series, we like to spend some time in the background, and I wanna do that here with you to talk about the background of the upper room and indeed the background of the Gospel of John. You may be new to Christianity, and if you are, that's awesome. We're super excited that you have begun some interest or maybe a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's fantastic. If that's you, I'm gonna guess John is kind of a new thing for you. So if you go to your beginning of your Bible and you look at the table of contents, you'll notice that the New Testament begins with four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they are called the Synoptic Gospels. Throw that word out at Bible study and somebody will be impressed with you. All Synoptic means is same. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice they have a similar chronology. They, they have a very similar language. In fact, so similar, most scholars believe that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark and expanded on it when they wrote their own gospel. John, though, is in its own category. Okay? John is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason for that is that John had a different purpose. John was not so much telling the, the story of what happened, even though he does that somewhat. His purpose was to explain not what happened, but why it happened. To explain what it means the significance of the life of Jesus. You might call it the, the historical theological purpose of Jesus' life. Let me show you the difference between the synoptics and, and John. I could say a statement like this. Uh, I could say, in 1776, 13 states signed the Declaration of Independence. Factual statement, okay? But that is different from saying in 1776, this was the beginning of the greatest nation in history. Almost the same statement, but one is trying to give the meaning or the significance of what happened. The other is telling just what happened. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give, certainly, they give theological explanation, but not like John. John's whole gospel is arranged in such a way to tell us why Jesus came. In fact, here is the thesis verse for the Gospel of John, John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John isn't simply sharing information. He is writing a gospel, and he wants you, by the time you get to the end of his gospel, to actually believe what John believed, and that is that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior of the world, and that you would personally believe in Jesus. This is the gospel and the purpose of John. So his portrait here emphasizes certain things that other gospels don't, and the upper room is a great example of this. 
There is almost nothing that John talks about in the upper room that is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that has caused some scholars to say they actually think maybe it was two different events. Now, I don't agree with that because there is enough that is the same that I think we can say this is the same event. But it gives you an idea that when you read John, his focus is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so there's your brief background. And with that, I want to get into the text. So we are in John 13. If you have a Bible, that you know, just put your your little marker right there, because you're going to be using that a lot. And if you have some electronic device of some kind, you can probably do the same so that you can quickly get to it. And I'm just talking right now to give you time. Okay, I'm, I'm giving you time. We are a church that preaches the Bible, and so we want you to be looking at a copy of the Bible while we do so. So I encourage you to come at least with the Gospel of John with you for the next year or so. All right, so with that said, let's get into the text. John 13, verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and I'm gonna stop right there, because here we are now setting the stage for the upper room. When and where did this happen? Notice it says, before the feast of the Passover. Uh, So we're on Thursday of what is known as the Passion Week of Jesus, his final week. Uh, It is Passover week. They are in the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And Jesus has been teaching and his enemies have been scheming. You maybe know that Matthew tells, and, and, and I believe Mark and Luke as well, tells that Because of the scheming, Jesus makes very special arrangements for this time with his disciples. And I won't get into that whole story. It's another example of his sovereignty, a man with a jar who you ask, and he's got a room, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the reason, though, that these preparations are made surreptitiously is that Jesus' enemies were scheming. And so they are going to have the Passover meal, but they're going to do so in a kind of like secret manner. So a couple disciples go ahead, they make the arrangements, they, they, they make the preparations, and all the disciples and Jesus gather on Thursday night. Okay, Thursday night. This is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And they gather together in the upper room. Now after their time in the upper room, They are going to leave. They're going to cross the Kidron Valley. They're going to go to a grove of olive trees called Gethsemane. Jesus is going to pray, be arrested, and you likely know the rest of the story. Now, as verse one points out, the most important thing about this is that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And that is referring to his hour of suffering, his hour of death. He's been telling his disciples it's coming. Jesus now knows this is the hour. And we see in this, friends, that Jesus is not a victim of circumstances. Things have not spun somehow out of control, a political firestorm that swept up Jesus of Nazareth and he died. No, God is sovereign over all of this. Every detail exactly according to his plan. Verse one again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. We'll pause right there. The first thing that, G, that John tells us that Jesus did is that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We're gonna get into that in just a moment. You may know this story, but again, John is wanting us to know what it means. As you read through the Gospel of John, always keep that in mind. John's wanting us to know what does this mean. And John now sets the table for the famous foot washing by noting what Jesus was thinking what Judas was thinking, and what Satan was thinking. We start with Jesus. First, what does he know that his hour had come? He know that he had been sent by God and that he would very soon return to God. And third, that God the Father had put all things into his hands. And what this means is that God the Father had entrusted to Jesus all things, all things related specifically to his redemption, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his rule forever, amen. This is very similar, for example, in, uh, uh, in chapter 19, when Jesus is actually hanging on the cross, John says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, okay, he knew what was going on. He knew this moment in the redemptive story. And so John gives insights into Jesus' psychology, if you will, his thinking. What was he pondering? And we could ask the question, how did John know this? And I don't know. Like maybe Jesus told him after the resurrection, hey, when I, you know, I was thinking this, or maybe the Holy Spirit revealed this to John and he wrote it down for us. We don't know how he knew the thoughts of Jesus, but we know that he did. And he notes here that Jesus knows that his heavenly father had entrusted now all things to him. If you were Jesus, what would you do? Knowing that, for example, your betrayer is right there in the room with you. Uh, perhaps you, you would you know, get the sword that apparently Peter had and sort of start playing with it a little bit. You know? Hey, Judas, how's it going? Uh, you know, what are you thinking right now, Judas? Something like that? No. Would you talk about maybe fleeing to Galilee and going into hiding? lest the Romans get you. He doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he takes up the basin and the towel and he washes the disciples' feet. And we're gonna talk about that the rest of the message here. But I wanna pause for a moment and just note that there might be something here to consider for each of our lives. You know, some of us know approximately when we're going to die. Sometimes we die in a car accident, we, know that we're, we don't know we're gonna die, we die of a heart attack, we don't know that we're going to die, but sometimes we know that death is approaching us. And what do you think about if that's you? And here we have Jesus, he's not dying of cancer, he knows he's gonna die on the cross, and we see what he's thinking about as he prepares for his own death. And it says here that his confidence was in his heavenly Father, that he was confident in God's purpose and will for him. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. The Father entrusted all things to him. He entrusted all things 
to the Father. And even death would not shake that confidence that he had in God. We call that faith, okay? We call that faith. And I wanna give you an example from our own congregation of what that looks like. And it was mentioned earlier in the service that yesterday we had a memorial service for one of the dearest saints in our church, Vonnie Statt. And if you didn't know Vonnie, you missed out because Vonnie was a, I went to her house last week and I said to her, you're the godliest woman I know. That's how I felt about, about Vonnie. Just an unusual, wonderful, godly Christian woman. And just a few weeks ago, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she's uh, 81, I believe, years old, and she said, you know what? I'm ready to meet Jesus. I'm not going to fight it. I've lived a good life, and, and so she died this week, and we had the service yesterday. But she wrote me a note two weeks ago that I want to share with you that is the same kind of faith, the sort of upper room faith that Jesus had, Vani had. So she writes me on Facebook this note. Perhaps you've heard I have pancreatic cancer. This morning they will do a biopsy of my pancreas and left lung. However, they told me I have stage four pancreatic cancer. Every medical person who comes in here and asks how I am, I respond, it doesn't look good, but I have a great God. My years at Bethel have been more than wonderful. I don't know how much longer God will have me live on this earth, but I'm in his hands and am ready to meet him face to face. Love to you and your family. Heart, 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 heart. Here's a member of our church with the same kind of faith that Jesus himself, as he knows he's about to die, has a confidence in God. And you see that confidence in Vani's note. And I pray that each of us have that kind of confidence and faith in God when our time comes. Because, my friends, it's coming for all of us. So Jesus now, he's filled with with faith, but he's not only filled with faith, he is also filled with love. It says that he is going to love his disciples to the end, to, to completion. And so we have Jesus now, faith and love. Contrasted with him is Satan and Judas. So Satan has so influenced Judas that Judas has already gone to the religious leaders and offered to give Jesus over to them. And many of you, I'm sure, know the story that they were like delighted that one of his inner circle would betray him. And they said, if you do this, we will give you 30 pieces of silver, which is not that much money. Okay, To give you an idea, 30 pieces of silver, I'm told, in today's economy would be like $3,000. Betray somebody of infinite worth, the son of God, for three grand. But this is what happens when Satan influences you. You do stupid things. And this is the stupidest, dumbest, worst thing ever done, was betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got Judas, you've got Satan, but then you have Jesus. And in his heart is faith and love. And that leads us now to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And as I mentioned earlier, this was a secret meal. And so uh, there, were not, there was not a servant there, which perhaps would have been there in a normal setting. Somebody there, or maybe even the host of the home, who, when the disciples arrived, would have washed their feet. Okay, 
There was nobody there to do it. Let's talk about feet washing because this is not part of our culture uh, so much, but it was the common practice of the day and it was the common practice for a very good reason. You've got to imagine back in the first century, different than today. So today, most of you have shoes on. I bet most of you have socks on. And you, in spite of walking through a rainy parking lot to come in here today, you probably walked into the church, your, your shoes maybe are mostly clean and your feet are probably entirely clean. If we were to get down, it might be sweaty and sort of stinky, but at least it's clean. Our feet remain clean. They are very rarely dirty. But in the first century, in the Middle East, uh, everyone wore sandals. Okay, so there's, there's no Adidas, there's no Nike, there's no Clarks. It's just handmade sandals. And on top of that, they would walk around on not like, you know, uh, paved roads so much. These are mostly just dirt paths that over the centuries, people accustomed to walking down, they were sort of packed down, but they're still dirt. And when it would rain or when, you know, something like that, your feet got dirty. On top of that, you're walking on paths that everybody else is walking on, including all their animals. So you've got, uh, you know, the, the shepherd and the sheep and the occasional, you know, uh, the donkey, the horse or whatever. And when you put animals into the mix of a dirt path and you do that for like hundreds of years, what do you suppose is on the path? Now, we, we tend to romanticize this a little bit, like, oh, it'd be so great to be back in the first century. First century, when you would walk through town or walk down the path or whatever, your feet were nasty. And so the practice was, when you went to a house, they would, before you came into the house, they would wash your feet because they didn't want the nasty in the house. You understand? They get to the upper room, nobody's washing anybody's feet. And they all sat down, technically laid down, as I'll get into here in a moment, with unwashed, dirty feet. Jesus rose from supper, so they've been eating. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel. And slowly he makes his way around all 12 disciples and washes each of their feet. That was Pastor Steve DeWitt reminding us of our salvation and redemption through Jesus' loving and symbolic gesture. You're listening to The Journey and a message called Washing Disciples' Hearts. If you happen to tune in late today and missed any part of this lesson, you can replay it online at thejourney.fm. Well, moments ago, Pastor Steve reminded us that we must not only acknowledge what Christ has done, but we must be active participants in his redemptive work for us. But today, Jesus doesn't wash our feet. He sanctifies us with the truth of his word. And that's why every day on the journey, we dedicate ourselves to sharing the gospel with listeners worldwide via the radio and internet so that men and women can grow in their understanding of Jesus Christ and live according to his will. And when you make a generous gift of any amount to this ministry, you'll help us reach even more people through this Bible teaching program. So would you give today? You can do so by calling 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or visit us online at thejourney.fm. 
And when you give, we'll say thanks by sending you a book called Decision Making and the Will of God, a biblical alternative to the traditional view. In this book, author Gary Friesen tackles the very practical issues of choosing a mate, picking a career, charitable giving, and so much more. It's a fresh and liberating approach to decision-making and the will of God. And you can request your copy when you give a donation by calling 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or visit thejourney.fm. On our website, you'll also find helpful articles by Pastor Steve on topics like family, finances, and faith. So be sure to take advantage of these practical resources. Again, that's thejourney.fm. I'm Tim Svoboda. Come back tomorrow when Pastor Steve continues today's message titled, Washing Disciples' Hearts. That's Wednesday on The Journey with Steve DeWitt. Today's program was produced and furnished by Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana.